the Vietnam War and the push for US involvement was a result of the Gulf of Tonkin incident. A lie. The Iraq War famously is a result of lies. Wars in Somalia are a result of lies. The Second World War and the German invasion of Poland was a result of carefully constructed lies. That is war by media. Let us ask ourselves of the complicit media, which is the majority of the mainstream press, what is the average death count attributed to each journalist? that was um, Julian Assange at the very top and uh, of course that was Anton Karras and not of course I'm in New York City this is my first um, Assange uh, countdown uh, season four uh, program in New York City since we left four months ago because of the pandemic and here I am I'm doing it outdoors today it's a beautiful day great uh, fall day and I'm at Washington Square Park and for a reason in front of the uh, statue of uh, my hero uh, Giuseppe uh, Garibaldi. Uh, Garibaldi of course liberated Italy, uh, he uh, brought it together and most notably in 1860 when he liberated um, uh, the kingdom of the two Sicilies, the kingdom of the two Naples, whatever, uh, went into uh, Sicily, then into Naples and then he freed all of the opponents, all of the dissenters, and all of the journalists that were in San Stefano prison uh, in uh, jail by King Francis, La Bamba, they called him. And uh, he said to them when they got out, show me who your judges were. And there were judges who went along, just like today, they go along in this uh, repressive uh, trial hearing, bogus charade, uh, of an extradition, uh, it's a show trial against Julian Assange, and uh, the judge, uh, Judge Vanessa Batesar, whatever friggin' name is, I can't even pronounce it right now. She got me so upset. She um, is one of those that Garibaldi would have hunted down in 1860, uh, who would have gone along to get along and been part of the ruling apparatus of repression. So, um, so we're here in front of, uh, and for another reason, by the way. Uh, my special guest on this finale, this is episode 43, season four, is is someone who's been working with uh, Assange as a, as a media partner for 10 years. You know her, 11, 12 years, is uh, Stefani Morisi, absolutely the best. Uh, and uh, she's been on the show many times, and she's the right person to close this season's uh, uh, programming on Assange. We'll be back in, in, uh, in a month or two, but... Uh, this is it. This is number 43. And so we're going to play a little bit of um, uh, music, uh, some partisan music uh, from the uh, 
let's see, I, I guess them, 1945. And then we'll be right back with the great uh, Stefani Morizzi, one of the most uh, intelligent and honest uh, journalists around and, and one with so much integrity. I love her. I just love her. And we'll be right back. Everybody loves her. We'll be right back with the great Stefania Morizzi. I'm here with Bianca, by the way. You can't see her. Bye-bye. Oh, ragazza dalle guance di pesca Oh, ragazza dalle guance d'aurora Io spero che a narrarti riesca La mia vita all'età che tu hai ora Copri fuoco la truppa tedesca La città dominava, siamo pronti Chi non vuole chinare la testa Con noi prenda la strada dei monti Silenziosa sugli aghi di pino Su spinosi ricci di castagne una squadra nel buio mattino discendeva all'oscura montagna la speranza era nostra compagna assaltar caposaldi nemici conquistandoci armi in battaglia scalzi e lasci ok this is Randy Critico Randy Critico live on the fly here on WBAI 99.5 FM, uh, we continue our Assange Countdown to Freedom programming, which actually started uh, on this station way back uh, in uh, April of 2017 uh, with Julian Assange and with uh, John Pilger. The following week at the behest of Julian Assange, I interviewed this great journalist who was working back then at La Repubblica. And uh, that, of course, is Stefania Morizzi. She has uh, been interviewed uh, by uh, the Assange Countdown series a number of times. And uh, she's been a partner with uh, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks in terms of publications for over 10 years. And um, we just finished up the second phase of the trial, as you know, or the hearing, uh, the extradition hearing at the Old Bailey and uh, Stefania wasn't there for that, but she was there for the first one. I know she's watching it very closely. Uh, I was with her back in February. And so she joins us now. Stefania Morici is an award-winning journalist, used to be with L'Espresso, then she was with La Repubblica, and now she's with, and I hope I pronounced this right, and that is Il Fatto Quotidiano. Yes. Am I right, Stefania? <laughs> yes, it's Il Fatto. Hi, Randy, thank you for... Uh, this conversation and yes of course I was watching the hearing I I was just cut out for two weeks because I was a witness of fact and the U.S. Law, the U.S. counsel asked for uh, not uh, being allowed to watch because I was a witness of fact but as soon as I my evidence was read before the court. I was able to, I was readmitted and I was able to follow the hearing closely. 
So you you actually, uh, Stefania, there was testimony by you that was read into uh, the testimony at the Old Bailey? Yes, exactly. Initially, I was supposed to fly there, but you know that uh, during the course of the hearing, uh, the the council, uh, the U U.S. council and the uh, Julian Assange defense were uh, discussing which who, who was supposed to be questioned, to, who was supposed to be cross-examined, and apparently the U.S. council. Uh, said that he agreed with my with the JR defense on my statement, so there was need uh, no need for cross examination, basically. I see. And can you uh, just give us the nature of, of uh, for those? You know, this is a, a U.S. audience right now, and uh, it was not covered in the U.S. at all anywhere, except for here on WBAI, uh, and that was uh, not that much, but as much as we possibly could. Could you, could you just give us the nature of the relevancy of your testimony? Yes, basically you have to realize that I have been there from the very beginning. I was I started working on the documents even before collateral murder. So I, uh, I have witnessed many, many things uh, as a journalist working on these documents because the first time I published a document in partnership with Wikileaks was uh, in August 2009. And at that time, Wikileaks had not published collateral murder yet. So few knew about Wikileaks and uh, its publications. So I have witnessed many things. I have witnessed how they published uh, the, um, uh, what happened before collateral murder. I witnessed what happened when they published the Afghan warlords, the cables, the Guantanamo files, and so on. So I was able to tell the, the judge what I witnessed as a, as a journalist who has worked on all these documents. Basically, uh, we were working on these documents very carefully. We were, uh, for the first time, uh, Randy, we were supposed to use such strict procedures. So it was absolutely false that Wikileaks was dumping these files without any reduction, without any uh, kind of work, without any security measure. We had the most strict security procedure I have ever seen in my career as a journalist. And I can tell you even more strict than those procedures used by colleagues who works on uh, very serious mafia investigations and uh, um, mafia investigation involving very dangerous criminals. In my case, Wikileaks uh, asked me, uh, in my case, but even in other cases, of course, even other uh, journalists who work on the documents about Afghanistan, Iraq, cables, we were requested to use uh, encryption systematically, so we were never allowed to discuss our documents on, on, our, on the phone, on the emails. So every time I was proposing an investigation or a publication based on these documents, I was supposed to go to my editors, wherever they were, travel there, meet the editors, talk in person, 
no uh, electronic devices allowed. Um, we were I was supposed to use ergat computers, not usual, not normal computers. I was uh, supposed never to leave an my computers and my ergat computers unattended, and this was very stressful, Randy, because you can imagine how stressful it is to keep your computers always under control, never left unattended. It was so stressful, it is so stressful, that at a certain point, I considered buying a special um, recipient for classified information, which is very expensive, something like 8,000 euros for each recipient, because it was so stressful never to keep uh, the computers unattended. So these were very strict procedures. And it was the first time that we journalists were requested such strict procedure. So whenever you hear that Julian Assange put people at risk because he was distributing, he was disseminating these documents uh, in a reckless way without being responsible, without uh, redacting these documents, it is completely false because we were requested very, very strict procedures, as I have never seen in my life as a, as a reporter, as an investigative journalist. And we were supposed to work on redaction. I worked on the cables for nine months, for more than a year, but initially nine months. And I was, I remember I was contacted with Helix uh, uh, around the clock to pass Wait, wait, wait Stefania, Stefania, can you back up? Tell us, uh, for those who don't know, about the cables and when the cables came out and how, how far-reaching they were. So first of all, you have to realize that uh, I was, uh, it was September 2010, I flew to Berlin to meet Julian Assange. He was flying from, from Stockholm where he had been under investigation and he had asked to the Swedish prosecutor to be allowed to fly to Berlin to meet me and the other journalists. And uh, we met uh, the 27th, 28th of September 2010. And since then, I never have met Julian Assange as a free man again. It was 10 years ago. So a <laughs> few months after, uh, we worked on the cables. Uh, Wikileaks uh, had initially um, started publishing these uh, cables with the uh, Top, the so-called top five, Guardian, New York Times, El País, Le Monde, and Der Spiegel. And as far as I know, these five partners didn't want other partners to join, but Julian Assange did want to have more media partners in order to have many stories, to have the cables properly searched. So in January 2010, I flew to in 2011 because the first publication was the 28th of November 2010 with the Guardian, Spiegel, and so on. Then in January 2011, I flew to the UK where I got access to the cables and I got access to the Vatican and Italy cables initially. Then I was allowed to search the full set of uh, cables, but initially just the Italian and the Vatican files. So I was provided this encrypted file 
And uh, he, Julian did not provide me the password initially because he wanted me to tra traveling safely. So as soon as I arrived in Rome, he provided, uh, the, the Wikileaks team provided me the password to access these documents. And I was supposed to work in very strict, very, very strict conditions. And uh, as I told you, I was neither supposed to use the phone to talk to my editors about these stories. I was never supposed to use email. I was just supposed to use encrypted computers, encrypted communications, uh, talk to my editors in person in a, a special room with no uh, electronic devices and so on. And I was supposed to read the cables and look for any sensitive information, any sensitive informant or source, and to consider whether that name should be redacted. So it was a very proper, serious journalistic work. It was definitely not jumping the, dumping the stuff on the internet. It was definitely not publishing stuff, putting lives at risk. And so it was a completely different. It was completely different from what we are told that Julian Assange did. Basically, this went ahead for something like nine months. In August two thousand eleven, uh, uh, basically something happened. Basically, a German weekly reveals that the encrypted file containing the full set of cables was available online, but it was encrypted, so no one had any concern. But the problem was that uh, some months before, in February 2011, The Guardian, two journalists working for The Guardian, two prominent journalists working for The Guardian, had published the password on their books. So it was not difficult to connect the dots that basically you had the an encrypted file with the full set of cables, and you had the password out there publishing this in this book. So everyone at that point understood that it was possible to get access to the cables and to decrypt it. And this is what Cryptom did. The US website specialized in leaks and sensitive material uh, created by John Yang, Cryptom basically published the full set of unredacted cables in the 1st of September, 2011. And at that point, the 2 of September, 2011, Wikileaks published the full set of documents because they had already been published by Cryptom. I know for sure what happened because I was in um, Hellingham Hall. I was in this, uh, country, um, in this country house, big country house, where Julian was under arrest, when he came out the news that basically uh, the, the Freitag, this German weekly, had revealed that the file, the encrypted file, was publicly available. And unfortunately, the password was published was also publicly available because had been published it had been published by the two guardian journalists so i remember that day i was at the hellingham mall 
in the rural uh, Britain, a wonderful place where Julian Assange was under house arrest. And he was deeply troubled by the idea that the, uh, the cables were basically <laughs> available online with the passwords out there. And I witnessed the call, the famous call uh, to the State Department where Julian Assange was trying to alert the State Department and Sarah Harrison from Wikileaks was trying to call the State Department to alert them about uh, the imminent release of these cables because the password had been published. So, I mean, it, it, what they- Wait, wait a I, second, you were there when he made that call? I know that famous call. Yeah. You, you actually witnessed that. Yeah, I witnessed those calls. I remember that uh, Laura Poitras was there and cooked for us. She cooked salmon for us because we, I remained for dinner that night and then went back to London and back to Italy. So it was the end of August. And, uh, you know, a few days later, the second of the first of September, Krypton published the, the first uh, the first version of the full set of uh, cables, unredacted cables. And the 2nd of September, at that point, Wikileaks released the full set of cables because they had already been published by the Krypton. So it was never, I mean, it was never ever what Julian Assange wanted. He definitely didn't want to publish everything and redact it. We had worked for nine months on redactions and we were passing redactions to Wikileaks all the time to make sure that the documents were published responsibly with the, uh, any uh, name redacted if it was necessary, because most of them were not necessary, Randy. Most of them were just embarrassing information. Uh, most of them were about sources providing confidential information to the US diplomacy when they were not supposed to do that. Most of them were pressure on Italian Vatican officials in order to get some bad things. I will tell you about the pressure to have basically the Italian authorities not forwarding the arrest warrants for the CIA agents involved in the extraordinary rendition of the Milan cleric Abu Omar. I'm sure you heard about this case because it's very oh, yes, famous. Yes. You yes. wrote about that case, right? I wrote about the case only thanks to the Wikileaks cables because you have to realize that Italy is the only country which basically was able to nail the 26 um, U.S. national, most of them CIA agents, responsible for the extraordinary rendition of Abu Omar. You have to realize that Abu Omar was basically kidnapped in Milan the 17th of February 2003 in the middle of the day, as in the child, in the Pinochet child, basically. He was kidnapped. And our prosecutors, one of the most prominent prosecutors we have in Italy, uh, his name is Armando Spataro and another uh, brilliant prosecutor, Pomarish, were immediately able to uh, start their investigation 
and to um, to um, uh, to reconstruct the, the the names of the CIA to uh, to pinpoint any CIA involved in this case, and they were able to charge them and to put them under trial and to get a final conviction for them. Italy was the only country to have a final conviction and up to the Supreme Court for DCA agents. But you have to realize that none of them spent a single day in, in prison. Why? Because six justice ministers refused to forward the arrest warrant to the US. And if you look at the, if you just have this story and look at it, it would have been uh, possible to guess that probably the U.S. had put pressure on the Italian uh, politicians, but it would have been impossible for me to provide evidence of such pressure. Wow. You know, uh, Stefania, that it's just amazing when, when you bring that up that none of these people spent any time in prison. When Absolutely. you look at that, when you look at the fact that, you know, uh, all of these uh, crimes that were committed uh, that uh, WikiLeaks has exposed over the last 10 years, 11 years, and you're witnessing this trial, because we got to wrap up here in a few minutes and go into our uh, second half, but um, looking at what happened there and then what you what we just witnessed in the second phase of the trial, how does that make you feel? Uh, what is, I mean, what, what's your emotion when you see Julian in this glass box uh, going through this torture for the past couple of years inside Belmorish and then uh, inside the glass box? Well, Randy, you have to realize I'm really upset about this case because I have been there from the very beginning publishing the very same documents, getting these scoops um publishing this crucial information like the information that, like the cables on or us pressures on italian politicians uh, justice minister and the secretaries to have the us uh, to have the arrest warrant not getting forwarded to the us so I published all this crucial information and I, I never ever had any problem. No one ever questioned me, no one ever put me in prison. And I see Julian Assange behind this glass wall and uh, he has never known freedom again since September 2010 when we met for the last time uh, in Berlin. And uh, you know, I can I cannot accept this. You know, I'm I'm really upset. I'm re I cannot accept that I'm free. I'm able to have a life and to enjoy life and to work and study and and go to work and so on. And he has never known freedom again. So I'm really upset, uh, Randy, about this situation. I'm really upset for him as a human being because I know that he's a good guy. Julian Assange is not an easy human being, I know. He's a complicated human being, but he's a nice human being at the same time. He's a, he's a good guy, I know this, because I have worked in, on, on, with these documents for more than a decade, so I know what kind of human being he is. 
So I'm upset for him as a human being. I think this is completely unacceptable. It is absolutely unacceptable that the 26 CIA agents which basically kidnap this guy in Milan and torture him and, and made torture possible, all sorts of torture possible, uh, never went in prison, not even for a day. And they enjoyed presidential pardon and so on. Whereas Julian Assange has never known freedom again. And I'm also really upset that we are not free to expose these humor, humor, serious human rights violation without having uh, the journalists who expose them in prison. I cannot accept this uh, for our democracies, Randy. I, I want to be part of this change. I want to be part of a team of professionals, journalists, activists, artists, and lawyers, and so on, who basically unleash a change. And the change We're going to is talk about that, Stefania, uh, about all of that uh, on the other side. Uh, we're going to take a quick uh, break here, uh, here at WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City. We're talking with Stefania Morici. We'll be uh, right back after um, uh, a quick break. La Martina. That was uh, Bella Chow, uh, uh, one of the great uh, partisan uh, songs, uh, anti-fascist uh, songs uh, from World War II Italy. Uh, we are continuing our um, conversation with Stefania Marizzi. I'm Randy Credico, Randy Credico live on the fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom, WBAI, 99.5 FM in New York City, collaborating here, uh, Stefania Marizzi, uh, from uh, my favorite named uh, organization, media-wise now, and that is Il Fatto. Il Fatto. How do I pronounce it again? You see that? I love the name of this uh, media organization. Can you just pronounce it for our audience out there? Sure. It is Il Fatto Quotidiano. Yes, and you can get you go online. On Twitter, you can find it there, spelled out just like that, right? Yeah. 
Okay. And Stefano Marizzi is S. Marizzi at S. Marizzi for Twitter. And she is, she's like the expert here. You know, my favorite journalists I really go to all the time are Craig Murray, who's really a writer historian, but he's been a great journalist covering the events at the Old Bailey. John Pilger, of course, and you. But of all the people, you've been the longest, um, you know, working journalist, working as a media partner with uh, Julian Assange. And, I, 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 you know, you were talking about that, being a media partner. How did you get chosen, by the way? Because I know he's very meticulous and very careful. Uh, what drove him to you or did you go to him? Um, yes, Stefani? basically, I, I, Randy, I basically put this in my written statement. Uh, so basically, you have to realize that I'm a, I'm a mathematician. So before going to journalism, I got a degree in mathematics. And one of my, uh, to graduate mathematics in my university, you were supposed to, to submit a thesis and a dissertation. And one of my dissertations was in cryptography. At that time, when I graduated in maths, my uh, knowledge of this um, of cryptography was just theoretical. Mm -hmm. But I understood the cryptography because I had studied that um, that discipline at the university. So uh, when I started working as a journalist back in two thousand eight, one of my sources stopped talking to me because. She was convinced that we were under interception, illegal interceptions. So at that point, I decided that I needed a bet, so better source protection. I needed to protect my communications resources. And for me, it was natural to think about encryption because I had studied cryptography at the university as a mathematician. So it was one of my sources inside the field of cryptography, which put, uh, who put WikiLeaks on my radar screen. Because at that time, back in 2008, uh, very, very few use encryption. It was even less user-friendly than in these days. So this source of mine, the field of cryptography told me, you should have a look on that bunch of lunatics. <laughs> and the lunatics was a nice way to, to, <clears throat> to refer to WikiLeaks. Basically, my source had, had a look at their work, and it he was impressed. And he said, look, these guys are pioneering encryption for journalism, for protecting sources. So maybe you should contact them and you should establish a content and see how they work how they work with encryption to protect sources and this is what they did basically in 2008 i contacted wikileaks they were pioneering the use of encryption to protect sources and there was no other media organization not not the new york times or the washington post these big newspaper would take uh, years before they use encryption. Wikileaks was a real pioneer in uh, using encryption. So I contacted Wikileaks. I started establishing this contact with Wikileaks. And back in 2009, when they had a, a document about Italy and they needed some help to 
verify whether it was genuine or whether it was not genuine, they asked me for help. They called me in the middle of the night. And I remember my telephone was ringing and I couldn't wake up. <laughs> and they, I, I finally woke up and they said, we are WikiLeaks. And I could barely understand what was going on because it was in the middle of the night. And they said, you have an hour. You, you should go to your computer and download this file. You have an hour before you download because after an hour we will remove it from the internet because someone can intercept it. And they said, we would like to hear from you about whether this document is genuine, whether it's relevant, we think it is, but we want to hear from you. So I went to the, the, my computer, I downloaded the file, I listened, it was an audio file about a scandal, like the garbage uh, scandal in Naples, when the, this garbage was basically, Naples was, the city of Naples was drawing in garbage, basically. And this file was, this file was very interesting because it mentioned an alleged role by the Italian intelligence in this garbage crisis in Naples. And uh, I verified that file. I helped WikiLeaks verifying that file. They had done their own checks. I did my checks. And we finally published in uh, August 2009. That was the first time I was a media partner for WikiLeaks. So back in 2007, when they had published collateral murder and the most important documents, for them it was natural to contact uh, to try to establish a new partnership. And in fact, I started publishing uh, basically the uh, Afghan war logs, uh, the cables and so on. And this is how it all started basically. Were you getting, can I ask you a question? Were you getting pressure? Um, I know you got pressure uh, back in February from La Repubblica. Uh, for covering the trial and for your reports. Um, but did, were you getting pressure back then when you were uh, doing stories on Cablegate and these other, uh, the war logs and uh, all of that from uh, Espresso or from Lobby Publica? I can tell you that uh, at the beginning, they, they were very collaborative because at that time, everyone loved WikiLeaks. Everyone was uh, uh, very pro-WikiLeaks. Uh, so everyone was uh, jumping the bandwagon <laughs> and so on. But later on, uh, pressures or um, unhappiness started and, and there was a different atmosphere as uh, weekly starting publishing these documents. You know, you have to realize that this kind of work doesn't gain you any powerful friend, quite the opposite. The U.S. is very powerful and their influence reach any, every corner around the world. So there are not may, so many editors happy to work on these documents because at the end of the day, it doesn't gain you powerful friend. You don't have the U.S. ambassador smiling at you and inviting you to have a drink or to have or to attend the ceremony and so on. So uh, it has been difficult at the end, uh, Randy. It has been really difficult. 
it's very easy to corrupt editors or managing editors, I suppose, uh, for powerful figures to do that. Because uh, uh, once you get into the hands, uh, into that atmosphere, going to cocktail parties and, or going to the ambassador's home, uh, it, it has a real corrupting influence. Is that what you've uh, witnessed over the, uh, the years as an investigative uh, journalist? Well, I, it's uh, something different than corruption. This is a difficult job. This is a difficult pro profession where you have few opportunities, especially in these days where, uh, I mean, newspapers are uh, shutting down, bank are going bankrupt and so on. So there are many, there are few positions, there are few opportunities. So people don't want to touch controversial things. Uh, people don't want to touch things which are uh, troubling and uh, they don't want to touch things that could be problematic with when it comes to very powerful entities like the State Department, the Pentagon, the White House, and so on. So it's, um, it's something much more subtle than corruption, I would say. It's, uh, it's about avoiding trouble because, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's very tough to be a journalist in these days, you know. So it's, uh, it's very, very, <laughs> very complicated to be able mm. to publish these documents. Well, you know, uh, Stefania, I, obviously you were having an impact. Uh, because as you, being a media partner and getting these stories out over the years, uh, over the last 10, 11 years, uh, and then reporting from the uh, from Belmores and all all of all all of this in total, it, it ends up that you were so effective that the CIA, uh, you know, did a a major operation. And you were one of their main targets as a journalist. And uh, did that, how much of that came out in the trial? Uh, I didn't see that much on it. Uh, but um, first of all, talk about what they did to you. Um, we've talked about this before. Uh, Max Blumenthal talked about it on my show. You were on it. But just give us a little bit of the background of what they did to you. Uh, for those well, who have not heard yes. this. I, I suppose you are referring to the spying activity, activities inside the Ecuadorian embassy yes. in London yes. when Julian was confined there. Basically, uh, during that time, he uh, Julian Assange remained confined in the embassy, which means from the, uh, the 19th of June 2012 to the 11th of April 2019. For seven years, basically, uh, I visited Julian Assange many, many times. And from the very beginning, at the beginning, it was quite friendly atmosphere. It was bad because, of course, Julian was inside the building, which was really small, and it was really bad to witness how he was confined inside such building with not fresh air, no sunlight, and so on. But at the same time, the atmosphere at the beginning was rather friendly. It was like visiting a friend uh, and talking uh, uh, without any concern. But at uh, the end, uh, around 2007, 2008, it was really bad, Randy. It was like to visit a prisoner inside the prison. So the, uh, one of the last time I visited him, 
I real I as soon as I uh, took my phones out, uh, I realized that the the security guards were watching and uh, watching at me in real time, and they entered the room and bas basically seized my phones and everything. So we were watched in real time. It was not like there were cameras. CCTV cameras, they were watching us in real time. So it was really disturbing. And when I saw the picture of what they had done to my electronic devices, or how they had unscrewed my phones, and uh, they uh, took pictures of everything, all my devices, all my USB sticks, power banks and whatever, chargers <laughs> and whatever. I was really upset because I could imagine uh, I, I, we were watched, but I could not imagine uh, to that extent. They unscrew my phones. They were co uh, recording my conversation with Julian Assange. I, I was able to get some of access to some of the videos and I was really upset. And you have to realize that they did so, uh, in, especially in one occasion, it was one month after I had discovered, thanks to my Freedom of Information Act litigation, that the UK authorities had destroyed crucial emails about the Julian Assange case even if the case was still ongoing and even if the case was still uh, was highly controversial. And I had discovered this and one month later, I was subjected to the, this targeting, to these uh, spying activities. And I want to tell you that I have decided to sue this company and I have decided to file a criminal complaint. Because I- well, Wait a second, Safane, there were two, I was there too. It, it was September of 2017 where the uh, hearing was postponed in the lower tier uh, with with, um, with uh, Estelle uh, Dahan and your your attorney and Jennifer uh, Robinson, and then and then it resumed. Uh, I think in uh, in November of yeah. uh, the same year. And you know, I they, they took some photos of me too. Was it that period of time that yeah. they intensified it? Because you yeah. had this great suit against them, which I understand you still do. But look, we'll talk about that in a minute, about your suit uh, against your FOIA uh, uh, suit against the CPSUK. Uh, 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 but go ahead. I'm sorry. Just want to get those dates yes, right. Basically, November 2017. Okay? Yeah, they, yes, basically in, in November 2017, I discovered that, that the UK authorities at the Crown Prosecution Service had destroyed these crucial emails about the Julian Assange case. And let's not forget that the Crown Prosecution Service is the very same agency in charge of this extradition case to, to the US. So it's not an, an irrelevant agency, an obscure agency. It's the very same agency in charge of this extradition to the US. And thanks to my freedom of information litigation, it was possible to discover that they had destroyed these crucial documents without providing any explanation. Basically, three years later, after I discovered this, they still haven't provided any explanation why they destroyed the documents, 
how they destroyed the documents, what the documents contained. They have no, they say they have no idea what the documents contain, which is unbelievable. This happened in November, 2007. And in December, 2007, uh, 2017, sorry. This happened, I, I discovered in November, 2017. And a month later, in December, 2017, I was targeted heavily by these security guards inside the embassy and my phones were unscrewed and uh, they took pictures of my uh, codes, uh, phone codes. And I was explained that the, the reason why they take pictures of these codes is because they might use for hacking activities. So I was really upset to realize how heavily I was targeted inside the embassy. And I absolutely want to file a criminal complaint and discover what happened. I want to discover whether they were able to access my inform information and data I had in the USB sticks. I had encrypted all this information because we never traveled. I never traveled without encrypting my data because I'm aware that yeah, these uh, data might be stolen or uh, I might be <laughs> arrested or whatever. I might be stopped and so on. So I always encrypt my data whenever I travel, whenever I go around. And I want to discover what, whether they were able to decrypt it, whether they were able to access this important information which I had with me, because as you know, we journalists have to travel all around the world, bringing our phones, our um, USB sticks, uh, and all we can do is to encrypt them. There is nothing we can do, you know? Wow, that is that really is scary. You know, look, I, I'm a comedian and a radio host, but the, just seeing a couple of pictures of me uh, inside an embassy, and one, one of the times I'm sleeping basically, I'm having a cup of coffee, but they really like went full steam ahead with you. And, and then they also went after a few other journalists. And the, the recent story was none of them cared. The American journalists didn't even care. They didn't do anything about it. You're, are, do you have anybody else joining you? No, uh, any journalists no. In I ask, I ask, I ask the Washington Post journalist Ellen Nakashima, who was targeted as well. I ask other journalists in US, but none of them is none of them replied at all, you know. So I, I, I didn't you, understand that. Uh, what, what, what do you think their, their reasoning is for not um, uh, this is just part of doing business and everybody does it? I mean, th this is a major breach, particularly as it's been exposed that it was done by the CIA funding by um, this character, uh, Sheldon Adelson, and you have this guy at UC Global uh, who uh, totally made a zillion dollars in the process and violated everybody's privacy rights. Oh, well, first of all, uh, Randy, we have to realize that we, uh, uh, it's uh, correct to say that we don't have final evidence that it was CIA. Uh, we have, we do have, uh, a lot of information, thanks to uh, thanks to two protected witnesses. So we hope to have 
final evidence of CIA involvement because these two protected witnesses provide a lot of factual information. And we are very lucky that there is a major investigation in Spain by serious people, a serious judge for at the Audiencia Nacional, which is the Spanish uh, investigative body in charge of very serious crime like terrorism, um, drugs, uh, trafficking, and so on. So we are very lucky that we have two protective witnesses and we have a very serious judge investigating this case with the power of a judge, which means he can arrest, he can put people under interception, he can gather evidence using very effective judicial tools. So we are very lucky because at the end, probably we will be able to get evidence of US involvement in this case. We have the witnesses. Yes. You know, well, so so when I say CIA did it, I, I'm only assuming because I can uh, imagine how upset they are with Julian, uh, not with just the war logs and the torture and everything. Absolutely. Else, but, but with the Vault 7, which you and I have talked about, that didn't come up at the trial much. Uh, it, it, can, can you tell us the significance of Vault 7 and why that would anger uh, incense uh, the brass at the CIA? Well, first of all, you have to realize that I was the only part, media partner for Vault 7. Uh, Der Spiegel joined at the last minute, but I worked on the files before weeks, we, weeks and weeks before they came out. So I was actually a media partner because media partner means that you have access to the documents before publication, actually. So I, I was a media partner for that release and it was very, I would say, I would use for the first time scary. It was scary because I was alone. No one was there. It was not like uh, working at the cables where you had uh, dozens of media partners and we were talking, exchanging information. I could not talk to anyone. I could not discuss anything because uh, those were CIA secrets. Uh, it was a nightmare, you know, it was very, <laughs> very difficult to work on those files and to try to verify some of, uh, of those files uh, with some expert, trusted expert, expert that I could contact without telling them uh, be careful, don't go around telling that uh, I work on these documents, you know? So it was very difficult. Why these documents were important? They were important because for the first time, they provided an insight on the CIA cyber weapons. So we had uh, an understanding of what kind of tools they have, how they might use them, and uh, how they work, you know, it's, uh, it was for the first time to, to get factual information on these cyber weapons on how they can penetrate computers, how they can hack, how they can cover their tracks and so on. So the, these are uh, important files for the first time to acquire solid and factual information. At the same time, these documents are not 
among the documents for which Julian Assange is currently uh, un, uh, basically have been charged by the US uh, Department of Justice. And uh, you have to realize that the only documents for which he was charged basically were the um, Afghan war logs, the Iraq war logs, the cables, the Guantanamo detainees. And if you listen to what the US lawyers say, they claim that they are not putting Juliana, they not didn't charge Julian for doing journalism. They did charge him only for publishing uh, document, uh, redacted documents which put people at risk. However, if you look at the indictment, that's not true. If you look at the indictment, you discover, and you read it very carefully, you discover that they absolutely put, journalists, put uh, journalism under trial because they basically charged Julian Assange for obtaining and receiving classified information, for disclosing classified information. This is absolutely what we journalists are supposed to do, discovering secrets, information, revealing war crimes, revealing 50,000 deaths never accounted before in Iraq, revealing um, death quotes in Afghanistan, revealing how the US put pressure on Italian politicians to stop the extradition of CIA agents uh, responsible for the Abu Omar rendition or pressure to uh, boycott, uh, to bypass the International Criminal Court. And 10 years later, we see the US war against the, EU, the International Criminal Court just for uh, investigating the US war crimes in Afghanistan. So, I mean, what the US is doing is uh, upsetting, is horrible. They absolutely are threatening they are damaging journalism because receiving and obtaining classified information is what we journalists are supposed to do. We we absolutely we do this all the time in order so, to so, Stefani, if, if what you're saying is correct, that what they are saying, the U.S. attorneys there, uh, and we know that the Crown Prosecutor Services are doing their bidding, but that anyone that has classified information in the future is subjected to espionage act violations? Of course it is. Of course, if they can, if they can assert their, their jurisdiction on a foreign publisher revealing secret classified information, revealing war crimes, and they can assert jurisdiction and extradite him to the US and put him in prison for life. Of course, we all journalists will be at risk anytime. They will do the same for an Italian journalist, for a French journalist, for a German journalist, there's no doubt. And you know, I have colleagues telling me, look, you know that Italy will never extradite you to the US. And they say, and they tell them, look, uh, maybe Italy won't extradite me if the U.S. asks my extradition as he's doing with uh, Julian Assange. But maybe one day I will travel around the world and at that point the U.S. 
we, I, I will be hit by an arrest warrant for extradition purposes by the US. And at that point, I will find myself in a foreign jurisdiction hit by an arrest warrant for extradition purposes. And I will become a target. I will become just a, a pawn in, a, in an international yeah. chess play, you know? It, it's so, just amazing that you have been, you've published everything that they've published. So obviously, I mean, more than any other uh, journalist, uh, you and the papers and the media outlets that you work for have published just exactly what WikiLeaks has. So I, I could see that happening to you. And, and, and another, um, uh, because today uh, is the 7th of October, which is exactly four years ago today, um, that the um, Podesta emails were uh, put out there by WikiLeaks just hours after uh, the uh, so-called Hollywood Access uh, tape. And there's been so much BS about it. The stories, they continue to abound that somehow WikiLeaks worked with uh, Roger Stone or someone within the uh, Trump administration to get those things out that particular day. You are an eyewitness on the real story. So why don't you just like lay it out for those who want to know the truth about uh, October 7, 2016? First of all, Randy, I want to clarify that I don't know the truth. I know what I have seen and heard from my side, from my point of view, because I was a media partner there. First of all, you have to realize that no one wanted to work on these files. Because no one wants to upset the Clintons, so no one wanted to uh, to publish these documents, and of course, there had been all this campaign that these documents were coming from Russia, so there might be a serious legal risk, and no one wanted to work on these files. So I found myself alone working on these files, and uh, oh. I know, yes, yeah. I'm listening. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So, uh, I thought you wanted to interrupt me and ask something. So I find myself alone working on this document. And um, so uh, I, at a certain point, they uh, notified me that they would publish the 7th of October. They would publish the 7th of October and they alerted me that they would publish the seventh the day before. And I asked, what time do you want to start publishing? Because I was not publishing my own story the 7th of October. I would publish later on my story. Because WikiLeaks had decided to release these documents and not uh, all at once, but rather in many different releases in order to allow people to get a better understanding and access to these documents. And they had decided to do so because uh, before in July, 2000, in July, when they had released the first DNC uh, emails, they had just published all at once and they were criticizing, criticized for doing so. So this time they wanted to do the right thing. They wanted to release 
uh, documents slowly so that people uh, could be allowed to read the documents properly, to search the documents properly. So uh, they alerted me the day before, and they said they would publish the 7th of October. And I asked, what time? I think we publish very late, very late in the morning or maybe afternoon and so on. And at the end, they publish, I think, 32 minutes after the famous Access Hollywood tapes, tape, uh, uh, which was about uh, Donald Trump make, making very rude comments on women. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it was not that they published at the last minute. To, to, um, they, they had planned this, the release the day, be at least the day before, because I was alerted the, at the day before. And so it was not a last minute publication as many, most of the people sustain, it was definitely not. That, I cannot say, I can, Randy, I cannot say what happened behind the scene. I, I can hardly say I'm 100% honest about this. Right, no, I, I know never, that Stefania, Stefania, I totally appreciate that. And I'm sorry, I, I, I was incorrect. I, you know, you're right. I don't know what happened that day as well. You know what I mean? But what I do know is, is that on the 6th, someone knew that they were publishing them on the 7th and that someone was you, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was alerted the day before and uh, I knew, I mean, I knew that they were publishing. I knew that it was supposed to be very late in the morning or the afternoon. And at the end, they published, I think, 32 minutes after the Access Hollywood. But it was definitely not a last minute decision. I, I want to tell you that basically they even tried to get documents about Trump. Is, uh, specifically, they were looking for uh, the tax uh, declarations uh, and they were trying to get these documents. I remember that very, very clearly. I remember that they were, they wanted to have a release about Trump and uh, they tried to get this kind of information, but uh, apparently they did not get anything uh, relevant. I remember they get some files about Trump, and they ask uh, the media partners to have a look on these files. But we realized that these files were already public, so there was no reason to publish these documents about Trump because they were publicly available. So I can tell you that they were looking even for materials about Trump. This is what I know, and this is, you know, you have to realize that no one ever contacted me, uh, neither from the um, Russia Gate investigation, no journalists uh, ever <laughs> tried to get uh, this kind of information from me, which is quite uh, unbelievable, you know, because if you have a car accident with hundreds of victims, and there is a witness, you go there and ask the witness, what have you seen? Uh, I mean, what did you witness? But no one ever asked me for anything, you know? It's unbelievable. It's, a, it's amazing that they not only did not ask you, but they never uh, went to that embassy and interviewed Julian Assange, uh, which Absolutely. I find to be amazing.
but certainly they should have uh, interviewed you. Uh, we only have a few minutes left here. I, I want to ask you, um, first, first of all, the consequence of the Podesta emails is, is that you got a lot of liberals in this country who um, got very angry with Julian Assange. So you have conservatives don't, don't like them because of the war logs and the cable gate. And then you have liberals uh, who are upset thinking that he consorted with Trump. So it, it's, it's a two-headed monster in this country. It, he's not a well-loved figure nationally. And, uh, you know, I don't even know what the question is on that, but, but you understand that, right? That he's not absolutely well-loved. Absolutely. It's not, I mean, I have seen uh, that, uh, they they basically are aided by uh, whenever they you have a publication they have an enemy so it's uh, one publication one enemy or maybe ten enemies for each publication and I have seen from the very beginning a real demonization campaign against especially against Julian in person uh, which basically was uh, denied any empathy. And that's why he, 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 the U.S. see him as a as an easy target. You know, it's very clear what they are doing. They want to crush him for publishing these state secrets, revealing extremely serious abuses, and they know that they can do it because he enjoys little empathy. And so once they have done it. They have a precedent and they will do it with any journalist they want to crush about revealing abuses by the CIA, the Pentagon, the NSA. It's very serious. They always start with, the, with, the, with people who are not perfect, who maybe are a bit controversial or maybe are, enjoy little empathy. It's like with the terrorists. They they deal, they basically tell you, oh, this is a devil. This is the a monster. This is the worst of the worst. And you, at that point, you are willing to say, well, maybe this is the worst of the worst. So you, we have to put him in Guantanamo and do all sorts of evil things. But then they will do the same with others. They are just using what they tell you. Uh, they are controversial, maybe dangerous people in some cases, but then these kind of abuses, these kind of special powers, these kind of uh, lawfare uh, get used against all, all of us. So they are using Julian Assange to crush journalism absolutely. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to understand this. And I am set to see the, the New York Times, the Guardian so silent. Uh, the Guardian, I would say the Washington Post, the US media completely silent about this. I'm really mm -hmm. upset. I'm really upset, first of all, because the, the New York Times got these scoops. And so, I mean, that's uh, completely unethical to, to stay silent, first of all. And then I'm really upset because clearly the target is, goes far beyond Julian Assange. The target is journalism, journalists, all of us. Right. I, I, I must tell you that, uh, you know, it, it's really driven me crazy the last four years because I see what's going on. 
I came to it late in 2016 when I first interviewed him. But, you know, already this year, I've done 43 of these shows because it's driving me crazy that this guy is being persecuted, being made a martyr of. And it's such a bad precedent that, you know, it's it's an obligation, I think, of anyone that has any awareness like me to uh, put whatever you can out there and circle the wagon uh, instead of the firing squad around Julian Assange. I, I want to get your uh, final thoughts uh, because originally this is the 43rd, uh, our fourth season of this um, uh, special series, uh, Assange Countdown to Freedom. We will do n number five maybe in January, but this is it. You were the right person to do this with, uh, Stefani. You've been there for a long period of time. I just want to get your final thoughts on the proceedings at the Old Bailey, what it implies, and uh, what kind of forecast do you have uh, what's in store for Julian? Well, to be honest, I, I'm not too optimistic, uh, Randy, because I have seen that in the UK, you ha always have this um, impression of fair play, uh, where everything seems okay, very fair, and so on. But at the end, when it comes to Julian Assange, everything is very weird absolutely weird. I have seen this uh, with the Swedish case, which was completely highly anomalous. And, uh, and Julian was left in limbo for 10 years without the prosecutors uh, basically charging him or dropping the investigation once and for all, a highly anomalous uh, situation and investigation. I have seen this with my freedom of information litigation, which is a nightmare. I have spent five years trying getting these documents. I mean, you have to realize that in just three years, the Washington Post was able to get the Afghan papers. I mean, 2000, 2000 documents about six documents about the US war in Afghanistan and they just got three years of Freedom of Information Act litigation and I have spent five years and thousands of euros in US, UK, Sweden, Australia and five years later fighting with seven lawyers representing me I get very, very little. And as soon as I start getting very important information like the U UK pressures on Swedish prosecutors, the UK agency, Crown Prosecution Service, destroying the documents, the UK Crown Prosecution Service putting pressures on the Swedish prosecutors not to drop the investigation back in 2013, as soon as I started getting these documents, they all they stopped all sorts of cooperation with me, started me denying me documents and documents and rejecting my FOIAs. And there is a, even an unprecedented development. I cannot discuss uh, this for legal reason, but soon you will hear what is going on in my UK case, unprecedented things are happening, <laughs> never happened before, you know. So we never had a look at this case. I realized that the, uh, Julian Assange has the full force of US 
and many other intelligence and the security complex against him and they absolutely want to crush him and they will stop at nothing. I, I have this precise feeling he won't go well. I'm very, very concerned. Wow, wow. Well, um, I, I must say that you really are an unbelievable, you're, you're, you got more, um, more stick-to-itiveness than Sisyphus did going up that hill. And one of these days you're gonna get over it and uh, hopefully Julian Assange will get over it and actually realize some justice. You uh, are an amazing uh, journalist. I, I wish there were more like you. I wanna thank you for all the work you've done over the years and, and for all of the time that you've uh, afforded yourself for this particular program. You, you've been a, a big benefit. Uh, you've been an inspiration and uh, continue the great work, Stefania. Randy, I want to tell a final thing. And the thing is, uh, this is a collective work. Uh, there is no way to say Julian Assange and to avoid the US crushing him and journalistic, journalism all at once, unless there is, there is a, a public outrage and people reacting and taking to the street and uh, writing and reporting about it. So this is not about me or about you or about uh, any, <laughs> any other, but it is all about us. Unless we, we, we work and unless we expose what is happening, these things won't change and it will end up very badly. So it, this is a collective work. I well, agree with that totally. It is a collective work. And the thing is, is that you've inspired so many people. Uh, they get the information. I see a lot of, of these activists on the street, whether it be in London, Sydney, uh, Toronto, uh, Milan. I, there are people out there, Scotland, uh, in Berlin. There are activists out there and more need to get out there. I know that. Uh, but it, it is growing and it's, it's, it's a collective uh, you know, uh, a collective uh, work of, of art is what it is. I mean, we really got to get out there and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's to galvanize as many people uh, to be outraged and pour out on the streets in support of Julian Assange. Exactly. So everybody, exactly. everybody yeah. has to make that contribution. I do it in my own little way. Uh, you've done it for a long period of time. You've inspired me. Uh, and that's what I'm driving at is, is that is someone that I know you put yourself in harm's way. You know, I know that you've done that. Uh, and I know it's, it's, it's part of, of, of your lineage. I, I know your, your, your family background, uh, fighting the fascists and, and all of that. So it's, it, you, you carry on that torch. And uh, you, you really are um, a remarkable individual. And I hope you inspire more to do the same. Thank you. All right, Stefania Morizzi, uh, thank you once again. And we'll be right back with some closing remarks uh, right after this. Thanks to you, Randy. Thank you. Pietro Badoglio, ingrassato dal fascio Littorio, col tuo degno compare Littorio, c'hai già roba abbastanza i coglion, la smai di 
Sabeva, meritavi di prender la meba ed invece facevi milion. Ti ricordi la guerra di Francia che l'Italia copriva d'infamia, ma tu intanto prendevi la mancia e col duce facevi spezion. Ti ricordi la guerra di Grecia coi soldati mandati al macello ed allora per farti più bello rassegnavi le tue dimission. A Grazzano giocavi alle bocce mentre in Russia crepavano gli alpini ma che importa ci sono i quattrini e si aspetta la buona occasione. L'occasione è arrivata, è arrivata alla fine. So, what a great way to close uh, this season's Assange's countdown uh, to freedom. Uh, this is season four. Uh, we're going to take a little uh, hiatus and come back uh, with season five uh, sooner rather than later, we hope. Uh, please support our programming uh, by going to Assange's countdown to freedom.com uh, and you'll see like uh, support. We just need to cover our bills, man. We're not in the Assange business to, you know, make a lot of money. We're just trying to um, maintain uh, the, the very small costs that we have. All right. So that being said, um, uh, thank you all. This has been uh, really a tremendous uh, season. I want to thank all of the guests, and there's a lot of them uh, for being on. I want to thank Kelly Lane, uh, who's been the engineer and uh, has also been uh, the editor. Uh, for all the work that she's done. I want to thank Margaret Radner Kunstler. I want to thank Emily Kunstler and Sarah Kunstler maintaining the website and helping me uh, prepare these shows. Uh, let's see if you can see Garrett. I want to thank Bianca. I guess you could see Bianca right there. I, I don't know, uh, but uh, she's been very helpful. And uh, that's just about it. Uh, we're going to go out with something special and we'll see you. Um, I think we'll do the Mattiotti tune. This is uh, Mattiotti, one of the great... Uh, Italian uh, socialist leaders who was murdered by Mussolini uh, in 1924. All right, we're going to go out with uh, Mattiotti. Thank you, everybody, and see you soon. Ad ascoltarmi state Canto il delitto di quei galeotti Che con gran rabbia vollero trucidare Il deputato Giacomo Matteotti erano tanti, viola, rossi e tumi, il capo della banda, Benito Mussolini.